Well, good morning. We arrive at the end of October. It's cooler and blustery outside. October 31st marks the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It is our Reformation Day. Uh, While there's others who came before Luther, who laid the foundation for the Reformation, the issue boiled over approximately 504 years ago, and it's marked when Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Luther's initial goal, by the way, was not to create division within the church. His initial goal was exactly what the name would imply, is to reform it. It was the Reformation was what he set out to do. To bring it back in line with biblical teaching under biblical authority. However, it quickly became apparent that this was a futile effort. Three and a half years later, Luther, as he began to write more, as he became more prolific, eventually had to give an account. He was called to give a defense at the Diet of Worms. And it was there that he was asked to recant his teachings, namely to deny the scriptural presentation that he had of Christ and of salvation. And he was famously recorded as saying... At the end of that council, as he stood before them, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther refused to deny the clear teachings of Scripture. He refused to deny Christ. He knew full well that he would be branded an outlaw. In fact, after his defense, before he had even made it home, the emperor had issued an imperial edict whereby anyone could kill Luther without threat of punishment. Centuries before Luther and centuries after and since, Christians have been persecuted in small and great ways for preaching and confessing Christ, for refusing to deny their Savior. As MacArthur notes, hard times are the test of faith. The church does not lack for supporters when it is popular and respected. But when the world turns against it, its fair-weather friends are not to be found. However, as MacArthur goes on to rightly note, it is not just physical uh, suffering that threatens believers. Believers can be silenced by much less or lesser forms of persecution. Simple embarrassment or friendly ridicule have closed many Christian mouths. It's sometimes easier, in fact, to stand up to vicious physical injury by a hostile government or hostile persons than it is to stand up to unbelieving family and friends who would never do us any physical harm. This morning we return to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 10, as Jesus continues the commissioning of the apostles, of these 12, he stresses the internal ramifications of confessing and denying him. This morning, we will observe together the internal importance of boldly confessing Christ and what this means for our lives today. So if you haven't already turned there, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 10 as we read beginning in verse 32. Therefore, 
Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray as we enter into our study this morning. Father, as we are reminded of the Reformation on this anniversary of that crucial event so many years ago, we thank you for it. We thank you for the teaching that took place, the call to return again to the authority of Scripture is our foundation for understanding you, for growing in our love for you, and learning how to please you and to honor you, to serve you as our God and King. So we look at this text this morning and look at the call to confess you before men. We, help, we pray that you would help us to rightly understand how this applies to our lives, how we need to more boldly go about that that we would not shirk from it, help us to understand the importance, the significance of this. We thank you, Father, for your guidance, for your teaching, that you have left us your word. In your name, amen. Last week we looked as Jesus encouraged his disciples and exhorted them to not fear. This was a logical place to come to after having told them just a few verses earlier you're going to be persecuted. You are going to be hunted. You are going to be hated. You are going to be stricken. You are going to be abused. You are going to be beaten. And it's not just going to come from outsiders. It'll come from the least suspecting of sources, your own family and friends, those closest to you. And so it was logical and reasonable that in light of that, in light of the natural human response to suffering, which is fear, or anxiety, or concern over it, that Jesus would say, do not fear. But he didn't just say, don't do it, leaving it in the abstract. He gave us, as we looked at last week, three reasons, three foundations and bases for why we do not fear, why we don't need to fear as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said that a faithful disciple, far from fearing, will instead stand on the rooftop and proclaim the message of salvation, proclaim the message of Christ. That standing on the rooftop, while it may have literally taken place at times, it was much more figurative in the idea of announcing and proclaiming a message to the crowds, to those who would listen and to those who would hear. Jesus then, after he said that in verse 27, closed with a reminder to the disciples that the Father loves them and he cares for every true disciple. Nothing happens to a disciple of Jesus Christ, to a follower of God that is outside his care, his purview, and his concern. In fact, as James tells us, as Paul tells us, all of these are for our good, for our edification, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
Well, this morning, as we've already read, Jesus now directs us to the eternal ramifications of confessing Christ before the world. Saying in verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. The everyone here continues to show that the application of Jesus' teaching, while including the twelve apostles, also continues to extend beyond them. These instructions were not exclusive to the apostles. And yet, with the exception of Judas, these apostles will become encouraging examples of the type of faithfulness that a true disciple of Jesus Christ demonstrates. These instructions are to be emulated. They are to be followed by all faithful Christians, continuing today. So what is the instruction that we encounter this morning? Well, it's simple in its brevity. It's to confess Jesus before men. It seems simple enough on the surface, and yet looking at what follows, we see in the second half of this verse and in verse 33 how significant, how weighty, and how important the ramifications of obeying this command are. Your eternal life hangs in the balance in obeying this command. So let's look at this command to confess. What does it mean? What does it imply? What is expected of us? This continues along the theme of proclaiming we saw in verse 27, but it alters the language from proclaiming, from preaching, from announcing to confessing. There is certainly overlap, but there is a difference and a distinction as well. Leon Morris notes that to confess signifies an open declaration of allegiance. In other words, it's not just declaring the good news, it's declaring allegiance to this good news, specifically or namely here to the person that is being proclaimed, to Jesus Christ. Another commentator writes that at the heart of the identification with Jesus that leads to persecution lies the public acknowledgement that I belong to him. Confession then is not simply teaching about Christ, It is also claiming allegiance to him, publicly, through your actions and through your words, claiming allegiance to Christ. This is, by the way, what is so onerous to the world. It's what was so onerous to the Roman government and authorities at that time. You see, the world doesn't understand it. It doesn't have a frame of reference, a way of thinking that allows for one to have allegiance to God and allegiance to God. To government. The governments and rulers of this world want you to not only be a good citizen, they want your only allegiance to be to them. Allegiance being your loyalty, your commitment. They want nothing else to be thought of other than them. And this is where the friction comes. Perhaps one way of looking at this progression we have from the proclamation of verse 27 is that it leads to the challenges where Christ must then be confessed in verse 32. That proclamation draws the attention to yourself where then you are put on trial, as it were, whether officially or informally, where you now must confess that you do indeed have allegiance to Christ. And what is it that must be confessed? Well, certainly it includes that allegiance. But this allegiance implies something significant. 
The confession here, based upon the context and what we've studied over the past several weeks, this confession appears to be primarily what we might say is Christological or messianic. That is, it focuses on Christ's sonship, his divinity, and his kingship. It's what Matthew has been building towards and writing about from the very first verse when he established the Davidic lineage of Jesus. He is the promised Messiah, the promised Messiah who will reign. Simply put, your confession is that Jesus is both God and King and that your loyalty belongs first to Him. But again, the world has a zero-sum way of reckoning things. It assumes that if you have allegiance first to God, then you can't be a good citizen. Scripture teaches an entirely different perspective. In fact, as Christians, we are to be the very best of citizens. But this confession, this confession of Christ is not optional for the believer. Rather, it's a necessary criterion for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We must publicly proclaim, acknowledge, and confess Him. Paul ties this confession to the fruit of salvation in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, where he writes, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confession with the mouth reveals what is in the heart, particularly in times of trial, trouble, and tribulation. And while we confess our loyalty, our allegiance, there's yet another thing this confession implies. To confess means to affirm, it means to agree with. It's not simply to recognize a truth. It's not nearly to say it is true. Even the demons, for example, recognize that God is one, according to James, but they by no means confess God because they're his enemies. We do not confess Christ simply by acknowledging that he is Lord and Savior, but by acknowledging and declaring him to be my Lord, my Savior, my King. John writes in 1 John 4.15 saying, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. Paul writes to Timothy near the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.6-7 saying that he, Paul, had kept the faith. He had finished the course. He had fought the good fight. Appealing to all of those analogies that Paul is so well known for. Paul then reflects on one of his fellow workers, a man named Demas. Demas, sadly, had fallen away. He had been a faithful helper for a while. Like the parable Jesus tells of the seed that is spread, he sprouted up quickly, but he was in that rocky soil, so that when hard times came, when persecution arrived, when it became too severe, he desired the comforts of the world and alleviation from the persecution, and so he fled deserting Paul and going off to Thessalonica. As one commentator notes, it is one thing to become convinced that Jesus is an outstanding teacher, even that he is the Messiah, and quite another to profess oneself to be his follower in the face of hostile opposition, especially from people in influential places. But to those who acknowledge him publicly in this way, 
Here in these verses, Jesus gives the assurance that he, Christ, will likewise acknowledge them before the Father. This is why Paul exhorted Timothy. Because he recognized, just like Jesus had recognized in the previous verses we looked at where he said, do not fear. He recognizes that's a natural temptation. It will be natural to want to hide from confessing when you're faced with trials and tribulation, ostracizing by family and friends. But that's why Paul likewise exhorted Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord in 2 Timothy 1.8. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. In fact, there is no other means of salvation. As another commentator notes, the issue is not merely obedience to Jesus' teaching, but the explicit acknowledgement and agreement of Him as Lord before a hostile world. Festo Kivingari I might be pronouncing that right. He was an evangelical minister in Uganda in the 1800s. He tells of history of persecution and martyrdom of Christians in that country. In 1885, three Christian boys, ranging from 11 to 15, were forced to give their lives for Christ because they would not renounce their faith in Him. They would not deny Him as their Savior, as their King. The King of Uganda was adamantly opposed to Christianity, and he ordered the boys' execution if they did not recant. At the place of execution, the boys asked that the following message be given to the king. Tell his majesty that he has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change his mind, or he will land in a place of eternal fire. To prevent them from struggling or trying to flee the fire, they would normally chop off the arms before they put them into the fire. The youngest of the boys said, please do not cut off my arms. I will not struggle. I will not struggle in this fire that will take me to Jesus. As they stood bound and awaiting death, they sang a song that became greatly loved by Christians in that country. It became known as the Martyr's Song. Because of the boys' testimony that day, just that day, 40 adults trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And indirectly, countless more converts were won to the Lord over a period of many years. By 1887, just two years later, a large number of other Christians were martyred. Many of them recounted being inspired by the fearless, loving testimony of those three boys who refused to deny their faith. Those young men can't help but be reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Only in this case, the fires did take their lives. And yet God used them to bring many to Him. And yet they knew something. They knew something that the king didn't know, that their executioners didn't understand. And it was, had to do with eternity. And thus the eternal importance, the eternal ramifications of confessing Christ, of not denying Christ. It seems so simple. All you got to do is say a word and pain is alleviated. If there's anything we like, it's an easy way out, isn't it? We aim at the simple. We naturally incline towards the easy route. It's doing the hard thing that is more difficult. It's the hard thing that runs counter to our nature. 
Well, the second half of verse 32 provides both an encouraging promise as well as an expression of the gravity of confessing Christ. Jesus says that those who confess him, he will confess before the Father. One of the very first things to note is that this speaks of a future time, a time where Christ will stand before the Father declaring those who do indeed belong to him. We've briefly looked at this same future time the past two weeks as we've observed the references to the coming of the Son of Man and the revealing of all things. It's at this same time that Jesus will confess all faithful disciples before the Father. What does it mean that Jesus will confess Him or us before the Father? It means that Jesus will at that time reciprocate this loyalty and this commitment and will declare that we belong to Him. He will declare that our names are found being written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 3.5 we read, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There we see that that confession, yes, it's directed to the Father because that is all who ultimately it matters, but it will be in the courts of heaven with all the heavenly beings around, hearing the names of those saints whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. This promise then is is and should be incredibly encouraging. It offers motivation for enduring and confessing Christ no matter how hard, how difficult, or how dangerous it may be. But it does more than that. It also reiterates, again, what we have said already, these eternal ramifications. And Jesus makes certain that this is not lost on us when he goes on to verse 33. There we read, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What does this mean? What does it mean that who will deny him, that person who denies him before the Father? First off, the denial of Christ by any person is the opposite of the confession. To deny allegiance, to deny solidarity, to deny loyalty, to deny commitment. It is to say that, sure, Jesus was a good teacher, but he's not God. It's to say he is wise, but he's not king. Or to say he is not my king. Please note, too, that this denial does not always require active or vocal denunciation. You can deny Christ simply by your silence by failing to witness for him, by trying to fly under the radar and avoid detection that would make life uncomfortable. Doing this develops patterns of life that deny Christ. If you do not live in obedience, if you do not repent over sin, if you do not show a sensitivity and an inclination toward holiness, you deny Christ. Yes, confessing Christ certainly involves your words, but your life must match. And sometimes, actions do speak louder than words. Paul writing to Timothy, in fact, you can turn here, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to his child in the faith, writes and exhorts him and admonishes him along much the same lines, to live and to endure for Christ as a sign of faithfulness. And he has been encouraging him to suffer hardship, to be willing to endure what is to come. And he says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, 
How do you endure? How do you persevere? How do you make it through trials and tribulations? Well, it begins with remembering Christ. Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. By the way, that verse 13 might be easy to read that at first and take it as encouragement. But note the parallelism. You had deny him, he will deny. If you are faithless, he remains faithful. What does he remain faithful to? God will remain faithful to himself, to his own character. If you have denied the Son, he will do what he has said he is going to do, which is deny you. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. He cannot act contrary to his character. And he will punish any who deny his son. Turning back to Matthew 10, we know the similarity in the promise of blessing or likewise in the promise of denial. It speaks to the same future time of judgment when Jesus confesses those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. It should become clear at this point that to deny Christ before the Father is no small thing. The consequences are permanent. They are eternally painful. To reject Christ, to deny the Son, is to spite the Father and to incur the wrath of God. Think about it for a moment. Many of you have children or grandchildren. If someone hurts them, spites them, does something to them, how do you respond, or what is your natural response if you, you know, were unsanctified? It's not very gentle, is it? God in perfect holiness and in perfect wrath will unleash that wrath on any and all who deny the Son. Our sin is what sent Him to the cross. If we do not trust in him, if we do not confess him, if we do not submit to him as our king and our Lord, we spite the Father. To be clear, the punishment for denying the Son is eternity in hell, a place of unimaginable pain and suffering. And yet God takes no delight in sending persons to hell. In Ezekiel, you would think of all places, the Old Testament is where we would read about God's wrath and about his hatred of people, right? Because God's hateful in the Old Testament, but loving in the New Testament. Well, there's no such dichotomy. It doesn't exist. In fact, what he says in Ezekiel, he says it several times. Ezekiel 20, 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather than that, that he should turn from his ways and live. A few verses later, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn away from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Peter writing says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And yet the sad reality is that not all will come to repentance. As one commentator notes, those who disown Jesus here on earth are stuck with the consequences of their choice. They will necessarily find themselves disowned from the Heavenly Father. Jesus is here pointing out the permanent consequences of rejecting Him. Those who do this will suffer not some slight and temporary inconvenience, but the eternal consequences of rejection by God Himself. If you're here this morning and have not trusted Christ as your Savior, I plead with you to do it today. To consider the ugliness of your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, took the Son of God and put Him up there on the cross. How ugly and offensive your sin is to God. Chief among those is your rejection and your denial of Christ. Repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you. The promise is He will. There is no work you must do, no penance that must be paid. You must simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take your place and bear the punishment of your sins on His own body on the cross. Don't delay another day, another hour, another minute. Verse 33 in Jesus' description of those who deny Him Likewise, brings to mind an important question for the rest of us. You see, this term deny is used only one other place in the book of Matthew. And this is Peter's denial of Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. So here's the question I have for you. Does that mean that Jesus will not confess Peter before God? That's a serious question. And it's an important question for any of us who have ever faltered or denied Christ, either explicitly or implicitly. Is there still hope? Is there still forgiveness? R.T. France helpfully notes that this later experience of Peter is an object lesson in denying Jesus under the pressure of public opinion. But Peter's subsequent rehabilitation adds a reassuring suggestion that the stark verdict of this saying may be understood to refer to a settled course of confessing or denying rather than to every temporary lapse under pressure. What does this mean? Well, it means that while confessing Christ is of the utmost importance to the life of a Christian, this is a reference to the settled conviction of one's heart, of the pattern and course of their life. A couple weeks ago, we were reminded of the story of Thomas Cranmer, who after years of pressure and torment, recanted and denied Christ. However, this denial was short-lived as he went to his death, proclaiming and confessing Christ. This use of the term deny and Peter's denial of Christ is really important for us. And it's important for two reasons. One, it's important because it does highlight the seriousness of that apostasy. It was a serious thing when Peter denied Christ. You see, Peter is sitting here 
in Matthew 10, receiving his apostolic commission and hearing these words and excited about what the mission he's about to be sent on, maybe a little bit of intrepidation in light of the persecution that's to come, he hears the weightiness of confessing and denying. This is Peter who, a little while later, will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's that bold man. He would have known all of these things. And so that night, as Jesus was taken prisoner, as he stood warming himself by the fires on the outskirts, as Jesus was being interrogated, able to catch a glimpse of Jesus, when he denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And Luke records upon that third denial, the rooster crowed, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. The full weight of what Peter had done would have washed over him. That look of Jesus broke Peter, and he went out weeping bitterly. I have little doubt that Peter questioned whether or not his faith was even real that night. You see, when we sin, especially when we have not repented of that sin, we should be very concerned with our spiritual state, because one who loves God mourns over their sin. Peter never seemed to forget that night. The Italian poet Luigi Tensilo wrote a 21-verse poem in the 1500s entitled The Tears of St. Peter. One of the final verses states, For although the King of Heaven forgave him, immediately for his disgraceful deception, not a single night in his remaining life passed without the cock's crow waking him up and reminding him how shamefully he behaved in inciting new tears for the ancient betrayal. But it didn't end there. And I think those tears later in life would have been a mixture of sadness, but of joy. Because the second thing that should be noted in light of Peter's denial is the extent of Christ's forgiveness. Until his death, Peter boldly confessed Christ. John 21 describes the restoration of Peter. Or after his resurrection, Jesus commissions Peter specifically to feed and care for his sheep. As he responds to those tears of weeping, those bitter tears that gave way to repentance and to the forgiveness that is so freely offered. As John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that moment, that lapse in Peter's life became, as it were, as we sang this morning, an Ebenezer, a stone, a memorial to look back on and remember the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And so until his death, Peter boldly confessed Christ. As we noted several weeks ago, the end of his life came as a martyr being crucified. Only Peter not believing himself worthy to die like Christ, asked to be crucified upside down. Christ's forgiveness spurred Peter on so that he would never again deny Christ, but would be marked by a life of confessing Christ wherever he went. As we close out our study this morning, I want to encourage us to do two things by way of application. First, importantly, consider whether there have been any times, any places, any persons where you have shirked away or failed to confess Christ. 
If so, if the Lord should bring those to mind, if the Spirit should convict you, whether it was verbal or by silence, confess it. Confess it as the grievous sin it was. Don't make light of it. God has promised complete and full forgiveness when we confess our sin. But secondly, prepare to confess Christ in every circumstance that comes your way. Now, how do you do that? How do you prepare to confess Christ in every circumstance that comes your way? Well, it starts with what Paul told Timothy to do. Remember Christ. Remember what God through Christ has done for you. Continually remind yourself of your sinful state, of your helplessness, out of which you were rescued. There's a reason throughout Israel's history, over and over and over again, they're told to make a monument, make a stone, make that Ebenezer. Why? Why make that over and over again? Because you're prone to forget. Why did coming out of Egypt, he told the fathers and the father's fathers, keep telling the story, establish the Passover, remind them, remind them, remind them. Because we're prone to forget. So we need to remember Christ. We need to remind ourselves. If only we had been given a way to help remember that regularly. We have, right? So we celebrate the beginning of every month here at Canton Bible. When we take communion together, we remember what Christ has done. We don't just do it out of road obedience. We do it because it helps us to remember, to bring to mind the work of God, the work of Christ. To remind us of the grievousness of our sin, the ugliness of what it was before God, and the significance and the sobering reality of Christ's death on the cross. If ever you don't feel the love you should feel toward God, it's because you've forgotten or you're not thinking rightly about what he has done for you. So start remembering. Read the Gospels. Remind yourself. If you were drowning in an icy river and someone jumped in, rescued you, and pulled you to shore, you would be overwhelmed with gratitude, appreciation, and love toward that person. Every time you thought back to that day, you would shudder to think about what would have happened if they had not pulled you from that river. And each time you reflected upon that event, your affection and your gratitude toward that person would grow and be rekindled. We must do a better job of reminding ourselves of what Christ has done. That is perhaps the best means we have of preparing ourselves to confess at any moment, at any time. Certainly to walk in obedience and to put into practice the things that we've seen and we've discussed many of the Sundays here. But at the forefront should be remembering Christ so that at the last day, Jesus will declare and confess to the Father, this one is mine. There's a poem written by the poet Leslie Rummel and it goes, how can men deny God, whose power can't be conceived, who sows, the seed of, who sows the seed of doubt in those who don't believe? How can men deny God, who rules earth and heaven above? How do the faithless rationalize the power and origin of love? How can men deny God when miracles happen each day? When will all men finally accept he's the truth, the life, and the way? 
How can men deny God when Christ shed his blood on a cross? For those who reject the Savior will die with salvation lost. How can men deny the God when Jesus conquered death and the grave? What will it take to convince all men? It's only through him that we're saved. How can men deny God and reject the anointed one? How long will it take for all to submit to the king, the chosen one? How can men deny God and fail to see and or hear? Is it Satan and all the powers of hell that instills such doubt and fear? How can men deny God and reject his perfect plan? When will those who doubt him confess he is the great I am? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning we've had of Christ's work on the cross. The significance of him going and bearing the weight of our sin. Father, may it still within us that love for you that's manifested certainly in our obedience for you. And at the, the pinnacle of that obedience is confessing you before men, confessing Christ before men, confessing our allegiance, our love, our fidelity, our solidarity with Christ. Give us the boldness of those three young men. Give us the boldness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That we would not falter, we would not fear, we would not desert as Demas did. Father, would you help us to walk each day reminding ourselves, reminding those around us, encouraging and exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching of your love for us, your care for us, your goodness for us, your work in and through us. May we boldly proclaim Christ, the hope of salvation, to a world that is so hurting and so dark. We pray these things in your name. Amen.